Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Today, the US and China are at war. Well, not literally, not yet anyway, but a trade war is bad enough and it seems to be hitting many economies around the world. So where will it end? Will China be forced to give in? Will the US decide it's not worth the hurt? Or will it just carry on for the rest of our lives? In any case, who is the winner and who is the loser? I've heard lots of people say nobody wins when there's a trade war on, but is that really the case? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. So there is this ongoing trade spat between China and the United States. The U.S. has 25% tariffs on $250 billion worth of Chinese imports. China has responded with tariffs on $60 billion of American goods. Donald Trump may well uh, step it up with more tariffs on the rest of China's exports to the United States. The U.S., of course, is banning Huawei. China may well ban FedEx. Nobody's talking. They're just sharing insults. Uh, China is saying if the U.S. wants a fight, we will fight to the end. So, Steve Keen, I mean, you are a protectionist at heart, so you must think Donald Trump is doing the right thing here. It's going to create new jobs for U.S. workers. Well, there's something, I mean, I've always argued that the focus that economists have on efficiency and allocation of existing resources is just the wrong angle to, to attack uh, capitalism from completely. And what really matters is investment and development of new resources. And when you look at the history of America itself, uh, my good friend Michael Hudson has an excellent book called America's Protectionist Takeoff, uh, pointing out that like many other countries, including, of course, China and Korea and Japan, uh, and in its own way, Germany, uh, countries industrialised first uh, with either, either explicit or implicit uh, trade barriers mm. that meant that what would otherwise have to be imported from overseas, like, for example, America importing English steel, uh, was no longer possible. So you had to build your own steel factories. And then with the, with the economies of scale, uh, as the American economy expanded as well, plus the pressure to be able to become competitive and, you know, export sure. the steel in the opposite direction at some stage, they all work. So the Does that work the- just in, in industrial era, though, as you're industrializing? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're in a post-industrial era now. If you look at what Donald Trump's doing, I mean, he's imposing these tariffs. He's giving money to farmers to compensate farmers for, for the business that, that they're not getting. That's not exactly investing for the future, is it? That's just propping, oh, no, no, propping no, no. up the it, mistakes. What's actually happening, and it's what's happening back in boardrooms that I'm interested in. Mm. And uh, what you've had, I mean, you look at the way in which China developed, and this is why I was extremely look back on it. There's some very, very fortunate sort of incidentals, not, not accidents, but happenstances in my life that uh, years, decades ago, I was involved in overseas aid. I was working as education officer for the Australian Freedom from Hunger campaign. And as part of that, uh, we were, you know, and my, my objective was to change Australia's mind about overseas aid. Well, you know, thank you very much for my budget. I think I've got 40000 bucks a year to spend, including my salary. <laughs> um but what we did at one stage is start we called Media Watch, which was looking at the coverage of uh, the third world issues in Australian media. Then we followed up with a, a broadcasting tribunal hearing, which it's worth talking about in itself, my one exposure to Rupert Murdoch. Um, 
But finally, I, I suggested the idea of running seminars between journalists of different countries uh, where we covered not just the daily news, which, of course, as you know, subbies and editors sit down and look, grab the, grab the rival newspapers, what did they get that we missed? That's the sort of event focus. And I said, we need mm. issues. For yeah. Issues oriented journalism. Gave a talk about it at a conference in, um, in Brisbane, which a uh, woman uh, in the audience walked up to me afterwards and said, I'm Jocelyn Che. I'm the head of the Australian China Council. I really like your ideas. We'd like you to use to do that for China. I said, yeah, sure, and then started flirting with somebody in the audience, another story, um, and ignoring it until I got a letter from Jocelyn Che saying she was going to finance me taking a group of Australian journalists to China. So I put together a year's coverage of Australia and the Chinese press, and they did the same. Uh, so Australia, China and the Australian press, and they did the same in the reverse. We then sat down for six days, I think it was four or six days in Beijing during the trial of the Gang of Four and discussed each other's comparative coverage and then hopped in a, a, a kind of set of Toyota high-rise, high-ex buses and, uh, and the old uh, Soviet clone of the DC-3 flying around the country and we went to eventually to the Shenzhen Free Trade Zone as the concrete was being laid by CSR, by CSR Australian company, had an Aussie barbecue in the bottom of uh, China at the time, and we then had the plans of the Shenzhen Free Trade Zone explained to us by the probably the most intelligent people I met when I was in China, and their idea was there was this loophole in the American uh, tariff laws that let American companies export components to a third world country, have them assembled or whatever else processed and sent back and not pay tariff on the change in value in the meantime as a sort of subsidy yeah. to developing countries. And that's exactly what the Shenzhen Free Trade Zone was set up to exploit. Uh, and so far, it was nothing different to what I'd learned from other countries. Indonesia was running free trade zones. Malaysia was running free trade zones. They all had them. And they'd all fail, ultimately, because as the wages rose, as they would do ultimately with the extra uh, pressure coming in from you know employing all those workers in process jobs rather than mm. working in agriculture, um, uh, with China said as well, and every company has to have a Chinese partner uh, when it starts, and no, yeah. no, 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 no yeah, and we and we sort of know all of that, and that's and that has much. No, you don't know part of it, mate. Unless I've told you already, that is within five years, the Chinese partner yeah. had to own half the business. Yeah, so I mean, it did uh, move you, quickly. You, but how is that yeah. China's fault? So it's got no, to the not China's fault at all. It's been incredibly successful. Yeah, and That's they've got they've now got four hundred billion dollar uh, uh, trade surplus, surplus against the United States. Yeah, uh, more for America, I guess, for letting it happen. Absolutely. Again, this is the typical story. American capitalists couldn't give a shit about the workers. Mm. Um, so they got this offer of an like the only reason you'd accept giving half your business away is you've got to make an incredibly profit on the other half. So to actually say, yeah, okay, we're going to, we'll start a business in the Shenzhen free trade zone. Uh, we'll shut down what we're doing in Midwest America. We'll transfer it to Shenzhen. Uh, we'll pay the workers. You must be paying a pittance. And, of course, they were. Back in those days, the, yeah. like we're talking 81, 82, the monthly wage of, an Amer of a Chinese worker, a process worker, was probably equivalent to the daily wage of an American. So they could, they could afford to sacrifice half the profits because they were making such a killing on the wage costs. And that's, that's exactly the, the, what's, the Rust Belt was, you know, all these Americans being shut down, production moved offshore. That's what China took advantage of. And at the same time, they wanted to improve their engineering. So because the Chinese Communist Party is dominated by engineers, um, that was a major thing. We want this technology as rapidly as possible. And that was highly successful. So mm. China's successfully industrialized. And now, of course... Uh, Trump is 
Yeah, drove the horses bolted. Getting anger about it in yeah, America. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, and, and if, if China did get more expensive, then there's always India, Pakistan, the Philippines, all those other places that the... But, uh, but you, the reason it's, it's going to happen more slowly than it would from like, if they hadn't had the, you know, half of the business becomes Chinese, then when it moved, it would have been foreign companies based in China moving to become foreign companies based in Vietnam. Mm. Now it's going to be Chinese companies setting off bases in Vietnam. Yeah. And Chinese yeah. companies establishing work. You know, well, it's cheaper for them, owners. yeah. To, to well, it's cheaper to, for them, but they get the profit goes back to China now rather than going to America. So hasn't the horse bolted? I mean, is I mean, Trump's not going to win on this, is he? Because it's, I mean, is the US really going to uh, set up its manufacturing industry again? Is it going to really redeploy people back in America? Or is it, it seems like it's well, too late I, for that. I think it's too late for population redeployment. It's not too late for machinery redeployment. Because again, think about what you've now, if you go for the 30 years ago, you just outsourced our a bit of your, your work to China and your, the long-term objective was to shift as much as possible there to minimise your wage costs. Um, and mm. you've, it, it, what has happened over time is you've now got this incredibly intricate supply chain starting in China. I mean, I find like you, so in terms of computers, for example, the CPUs are still made in America because China hasn't yet mastered you know, micron-level technology. So they can make some chips, but they certainly can't make CPUs. Right. Um, but even so, before that, it actually starts in China because a lot of those uh, rare-earth uh, materials that are needed, actually China's got a stranglehold on those. All, all the it doesn't, oxides. No, it doesn't have a stranglehold. It, it's, it's, uh, it, this is, again, it, it, I'm, I'm, a lot of what I say is coming from actually feedback from some of the patrons I have to, have to acknowledge here. Mm. Um, but uh, I'll get sent links to see just how... <laughs> serious claim. And it looks like the reason that the uh, rare earths are being done in China is not because of availability of the mineral deposit, because basically there's no such thing as a mineral deposit of rare earths, because they're very, like, if you, you can find a copper deposit, you can find an iron ore deposit, you can find a aluminum uh, alumina deposit. You cannot find a rare earth deposit because they basically they, they just bond with anything. So you got to, it's the refining. You'll find rare earths in copper deposits. You'll find rare earths in, you know, a whole range of other minerals. Yeah. You get them as a side effect. And then to actually, because there's such trace out levels, the processing is extremely, it's, it's polluting and costly. So therefore, that's why China scored the... Because the, um, uh, the, they're the, happy to pollute and they've got a lower cost of labour. Yeah, basically. Mm. Uh, but now, because it's, if, you, if you're willing to put up with the less pollution because you'll have a higher technology base in, in the West uh, and higher wages, mm. you can still produce the rare earth. So it's, yeah. it's a nuisance rather than a stranglehold. But if, if, if America was to take that and do it themselves, that would push up prices. If America was uh, not outsourcing its labour to China or to any other country, that would uh, push up prices. So US consumers, at the moment, it seems US consumers are happy to pay for things as they are, perhaps not so happy to pay more if these jobs were bought back. But also, hey, what's the problem? Because if you look at uh, unemployment in the, the US, we're told by Donald Trump it's at an all-time low. Yeah, that'd be uh, that. You know, I'm much more of a fan of the population to uh, employment to population ratio. But even that is now getting back into re- close to what it was uh, before the 2007 crisis. So uh, the, the QE is as clumsy a way of stimulating the economy as it is has had an impact over time. Deficits have also helped, um, mm. and and tax cuts in a very trivial way. It'd be much better giving you know tax breaks to the poor or subsidies to the poor than tax breaks right. to the rich. But all of that but, could be done. Yeah. I mean, you could say, well, okay, if we need QE, let's continue. If we need tax breaks, yes, let's let's make sure we're we're, we're dealing with uh, uh, inequality in in the economy at the same time. But 
surely better to say making it it worse yeah yeah we're on them making it worse but surely better to say well okay you know all the jobs that we don't want to do yeah let's get them done overseas cheaper if we've got full employment uh, in our own country or let's create jobs what's wrong with that well this is the thing it's it's at the moment um this the american economy is doing fine uh you know it's post post Crisis. I see it as a post-credit crisis, not having got over the problem at all, but uh, supplementing the, the shortage of credit with the government deficit, and um, and the trade and the tariff thing as as well. Mm. And the the impact in terms of consumers is less than is normally estimated by economists because they assume a pretty much hundred percent pass through of the increase in tariff, and then they say. The question is then: Does it fall on the producer or does it fall on the consumer? The incident calculations they make. In fact, when you, they're effectively presuming that 100, the firms are pricing themselves at marginal cost. Marginal cost rises, therefore price rises by the increase in marginal cost. And does that fall upon the consumer or upon the producer, depending upon elasticities of demand and supply? Yeah. Those are the calculations you get from most economists. Right. When you look at the data, you find. Uh, it's all, you know, flat costs. It's falling costs. The higher the volume, the lower the cost of production. Um, and you have a markup, therefore, on your uh, cost of production, which is your profit markup. And then if you if you face a, a tariff increase, you don't want to lose market share to the local producers. So rather than passing on 100% of the cost, you absorb 80% of it yourself and pass on 20 and you reduce your margin. And so the, the cost, the price increase that consumers finally see is one-fifth as high uh, as it would be if there's a 100% pass on and it all fell on the consumer. Well, that so, says tar- introducing tariffs then as a form of protectionism just don't work. Well, they don't work in terms of um, of making it more expensive uh, and, and for if consumers locally and giving 100% of that advantage then to local producers. Well, that's the only reason you market. do it, isn't it? The only reason you do it, unless you're saying, well, no, we want, which Donald Trump said a few times, no, we want the money. You know, we'll take we'll yeah. take the money in the t- from the tariffs because we'll use that to uh, subsidise our farms. That is, a form, that is a form of tax increase. Yeah. You know, so in, in that sense, it's covering part of the deficit he's running elsewhere. Not that you need to, but that's what's actually happening, just mm. changing the tax base. Um, and it may be, you know, in some ways, more just as effective as income tax. So it's it's not the drastic change that people are worried about at that level. The drastic change is you're disrupting supply chains. Yeah. And people are looking at this, and their internal calculations are going haywire because suddenly they've got to boost the price by twenty five percent. If if they're you know they're going to be trying to find internal ways of true shipping it so they don't actually treat it as an import. All sorts of tricks are going to be tried. But fundamentally, people working in you know, in the in the um, managing directors of American companies are going to be saying, uh, we just can do without this disruption. And what are, what are the cost advantages of China these days versus bringing it back on shore? And what are the uh, management advantages of not having to worry about a long supply chain anymore? And and in one year, what did, what does technology enable us to do that wasn't possible twenty years ago? Yeah. And on all those fronts, makes uh, sense to bring it back home. Yeah, it makes some sense. I mean, yeah. there's certainly the, the the cost advantage. That is what what's happened with technology over time is we've increased the amount of machinery used to exploit energy and turn it into work, and reduced the amount of labour done the same way. That's what we call we call increasing labour productivity is actually increasing machinery productivity, meaning you need less workers per machine. But it it, so, it looks like Donald Trump could take this one stage further, though, doesn't it? So rather than just tariffs, I mean, he's he's looking at you know a ban on Huawei, uh, perhaps other companies as well. Uh, China's yeah. looking at perhaps doing the same thing as well. That's mm-hmm. a different thing. When you just say no, 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 you just can't sell here. 
Uh, we, you know, we're going to protect our own industry. Uh, well, you know, I'll, 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 I'll blame it on security concerns because I can make a, a unilateral decision on that basis and uh, away you go. You know, uh, so all of a sudden you have to, that gap in the market has to be filled by American companies. Yeah, but at the same time, a question of how much of the gap can they fill? I mean, how much of the production is actually seriously based overseas in the sense that there's no local alternative? Mm. Uh, in some areas, some types of steel, for example, uh, like in certainly the UK, uh, when, when the, the UK looks like it's going to lose what the Sculthorpe um, um, uh, iron and steel facility, Scunthorpe, it makes some yeah. of the steel for the, not that I'm particularly a fan of the Trident missile, but it makes some of the metal for the Trident missile that isn't made anywhere else uh, in the U- in the UK, so yeah. you'd suddenly an essential part of the UK's defence would depend upon imported products, which is not a healthy situation to be in. So uh, there are there were some products which have been outsourced from America to somewhere else that America doesn't currently produce. And Tim Tim Cook's comment at one stage that if he wanted to hold a meeting of all the machine tools workers in America, he could hold it in his boardroom. If you want to hold the meeting of all the machine tool workers in China, you'd need a football stadium. Mm. Uh, That is partly the problem as well. You still need the skilled labour, and America doesn't have that to the same degree it had 30 years ago because of the outsourcing movement. So it is difficult to do some of this, but at the same time, the directions of technology um, and this, I know I know one of my, my patrons said, look, I'm talking pie in the sky. I'm going to talk about additive manufacturing rather than um, you know, what would be called classical manufacturing, cutting pieces of metal. Um, additive's got a hell of a long way to go, but the direction it's moving in is that you don't need um, – the machine itself has to be able to do all of that. You need an operator for the machine. You don't need people cutting some pieces of metal. You can use far less moving parts, far less pieces of metal, as far as assembly is necessary. So if the production does come back on shore, it'll be much, much lower labour, much, much higher machinery content, but it will take years to do it. But what it will mean at the same time is that if it's going to happen, American companies have to be investing. So if they're investing, you get a growth spurt. Mm. Mm. And there's more reason perhaps to invest in the United States because if there's a trade war on, it looks like the safe place to be because it looks like uh, all this uncertainty is hitting the rest of the world, the US less so. I mean, you know, you hear that phrase, nobody wins in a trade war, but th- maybe everyone loses, but maybe the US is losing less than everybody else. So, so um, yeah. you know, we, if, and if the US economy was to slow, they've got more room to ma- maneuver because if we, if we believe rate cuts make a difference, and that's a topic for another day, but if we, yeah. if we believe that's the case, the Fed's got more room to move than most because, you know, the interest rates are reasonably high. Mm. Uh, in, in lots of places like Europe, they're, they're zero or below zero. So, mm. has, so the US has the ability to throw around its economic might, doesn't it, at the expense of yeah. everyone else? And there's a lot of that going on, I think. Yeah, and I think, I think and again, if you actually spurt, if you cause corporate investment to rise, and I think that would be happening in reaction to the disruption of the supply chain, then the American economy doesn't come out too badly out of the whole thing. And mm. But it, well, American workers don't do so crash hot. But again, Trump doesn't really care about them. Uh, if he can advertise the uh, increase in profits and the uh, investment that's going on and so on, and that the investment itself has spillover effects. So, you know, when you when you... You're going to be constructing a new plant. You have to have construction workers. You have to have the food supplies. You know the, what, what friends of mine call the sushi effect. Yeah. Um, you increase the sales of sushi because you're building a an auto works. Um, all this sort of stuff is going to happen. Um, so America can get through this trade war fairly comfortably. It's the rest of the world that might get stuffed up. And of course, at the same time, China is going to be saying, let's get the hell out of our relationship with the States, which has been diminishing anyway. Mm. Let's build it up with more sensible places like Europe and, and Russia. 
Yeah, although they still, of course, hold an awful lot of U.S. debt. I mean, and, and you know, that's they're probably going to hang on to answer that in the form of treasuries for a long time. But if in in this environment, if you're going to buy one currency, what currency are you going to buy? You're going to buy the U.S. dollar because because yeah. uh, yeah. that seems to be the uh, you know hedging your bets on who's going to win all of this. But China's yeah. currency, of course, I mean that's part of it as well. You know, China's currency is partially fixed to the dollar so i mean that presumably keeps prices lower so uh, that that is also to china's advantage if, if it was a free moving market if china became so cheap to produce with such high volumes then that would have pushed the value of the yuan up wouldn't it and the price dif- disadvantage would have fallen away but because it's it's pegged that's not that's not happening and there's one reason they buy the treasuries as well, yeah. because they quarantine the impact filing for their own to their own currency. So all this stuff is done to to mean they can continue their trade oriented programs and run the export surplus they've got. So uh, they're not about. They might well do something about the Chinese treasuries. It won't work because, of course, they've got a limitless. America's got a limitless capacity to buy things denominated in its own currency and yeah. the rest of the world, for that matter, because it's the reserve currency of the planet. So that's. Not an effective weapon. And how do how how do you buy them anyway? I mean, if you, the moment you start, how do you sell them? So, because the moment you started to sell them, everyone would get wind of what you're doing. They'd all go down in value. So you'd stop selling them. So you can only sell so many when you when you hold such a, a large proportion of, of well, the total no, stock. No, in fact, because uh, every issue of American treasuries has been oversubscribed in history, mm. um, and the same thing would happen here with the treasuries for sale. There'd be buyers, and if there weren't buyers, the Federal Reserve's the underwriter. Yeah. So it'd be a damn squib. It's not going to work. And I guess in but times what, of uncertainty, everyone wants everyone wants uh, treasury. Yeah, in the same situation, yeah. you, you yeah. Know, America w- wins both ways. Mm. What I think is more likely happening, I hope it's happening, is that I hope the Chinese are doing what they've been speaking about for some time, and that's trying to design a, a basket of currencies uh, to create an, a, a sort of a virtual currency that can be used for international trade that doesn't involve the American dollar. Yeah. Now that because the, the the real problem with the Americans' objective of getting trade balance with China is they can't get trade balance with anybody because they've got an overvalued currency. So that brings me to my next point because if you look at um, you know the the growing uh, economies, obviously the, the developing economies, China, India, Vietnam, the Philippines, Cambodia, massive populations. These are countries that don't necessarily crave American cars or American farm produce. So isn't there a danger that trading relationships, if America carried on this way, trading relationships is just going to develop that simply exclude the United States? But perhaps, you know, perhaps they're seen as, as being too much of a sovereign risk, a country that you don't want to deal with because they break trade conventions. And you, uh, Yeah, and, and, and I think that's the case. And, and, and they are doing it. I mean, they, they, they broke trade conventions with forming the, the Bretton Woods Agreement in the first bloody place because, they keep on emphasising, Keynes wanted a non-national currency for international trade, the Bancorp. Mm. And Harry Dexter White insisted it had to be the American dollar. And as the boss of the American delegation, most powerful group in Bretton Woods, he won the day. So right from the very outset, they've corrupted the system. We're now just uh, 70 years down the track or thereabouts, so so it's coming up to 75 years actually. Uh, We're just wearing the consequences of that. So that makes America isolated, isn't it? I mean, that's the danger, isn't it, that this this could happen? Yeah, and I think I think it, I'm hoping it does happen because America is never going to voluntarily give up having the reserve currency of the planet. It'll have to be done despite them. Uh, the only country in that sense that has the capacity to do that is China, because if Europe, Europe is not about to disobey America, they're, they're certainly going to snigger about Trump, mainly behind his back, sometimes in front. Uh, they're they're certainly going to complain in closed doors with the other bureaucrats about what's happening courtesy of America's policies, but they're not about to go explicitly 
taking on something as a deliberate rival to the American dollar. The Chinese, particularly with the trade war being pushed in, I think are going to do it. Will they? Or are they going to suffer? Because they already are, aren't they? And that they, uh, you know, they haven't got the domestic growth that they were hoping for. I mean, that was always the answer, wasn't it? Look, if they, if they lose the export markets, they've got a massive domestic market. They just need to grow there. But that's that's not uh, not giving the growth that they would like. If they're going to develop new trade relationships, that's going to take time to, to, to develop. I mean, could the US actually say no? We, you know, that, and it's been said, in fact, quoted in the Chinese press that this isn't a trade war. This is, this is, this is the United States trying to make basically ruin China. Uh, well, and, and he, you know, if you look at what's happened, uh, with the Chinese stock market, for example, massive falls there, all down to Donald Trump. Mm, yeah, I mean, it certainly is, you know, this is international finance is the conduct of war by other means. Mm. Um, so, yeah, they are trying to destroy it. And there's certainly enough American, American you know, elements to the American administration that see this as a, as a war, as a fight between two cultures they intend winning. So um, it, is, it is, in that sense, it's a great power conflict. It's something which we haven't seen in that sense since the... Um, in some ways, even the First World War rather than the Second. Yeah. That was the last real great powers conflict. So that's what's happening at the moment. Now, it can't go the same direction as those conflicts did because we have nuclear weapons these days. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like we've moved, you know, we had, we had wars fought with weapons. Then we had a Cold War, which was really fought with politics. And now we've got a war which is fought on the financial markets. It's so 21st yeah. century, isn't it? Mm. And I, I think... Like it's, I'm certainly not going to try to pick a winner out of all this. I think. In I was hoping you were. That's what I've been edging to. I well, mean, on the, I mean, on okay, the one okay, side, okay. we're saying I'll, the I'll, United I'll, States has got the ability, perhaps, to destroy uh, China. But on the other side, China's got the rest of the world and has, you know, perhaps yeah. got the ability I, I, to I isolate. Would, I would the United come States. down on the China side on the long term, America in the short. Mm. So I think in the short term, um, America's first of all is getting a trade, getting an investment boost out of this. Yeah. Um, it's also got people buying its currency, which is partly the problem. It's still overvalued. They'll hang on to being the reserve currency of the planet. But at the same time, China has already started the Silk Road project. It's almost started, almost finished the Silk Road project. Yeah. Uh, they've got strong links in Africa as well. So you're getting like a, a continental block. If you think about Europe, Eurasia, Africa as one continental block in the United States and Canada and you know, part, partly South, South, parts of South America, the other, then you're getting a, a breakdown across those levels. And that may well uh, end up being enforced further by climate change because at some stage the ships that cross those oceans and the planes that cross those oceans are going to be told you can't do that anymore. Yeah. So there's a, there's a contentification coming on and China uh, with, the, with, with Europe uh, and the Middle East and Africa on its side it's got the biggest continent. Yeah. So I'm. I would say in the long term, I'd see China being the winner out of this. Yeah. I mean, that, that proximity argument's an important one, isn't it? But I mean, also China's pretty close to all of China. Like, there's 1.4 billion people in China, so mm. the domestic mm. market's pretty good, and India isn't far behind. Uh, and so, of course, the influence of the U.S. economy is going to slide. I mean, that's just inevitable, just by the sheer weight of numbers. Before we even look at the proximity of all of these areas and how America's a bit further away from it all. Yeah. 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 So what about so, what about debt though in China in the short term? Is there a way that Donald Trump, because you know, could he make the debt in China reach a tipping point where things start to escalate badly 
for the Chinese. Well, I mean, that's what you're talking private or government debt here, mate. <laughs> well, bit of, well, bit of both. But I mean, you, you and I both know the real issue is, is going to be private debt, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The Chinese private debt is huge. It's about uh, 2.1, 2.2 times GDP if you look at the debt of the non-financial sector to the financial uh, sector. Um, and we saw, and, and we saw, you know, the stock market crash. You know, so yeah. investors will be feeling a little bit, a uh, little bit weary at the moment. Yeah, but I think the the debts owed by private people, but who are the banks themselves? And it turns out that, you know, particularly in China, uh, to a large extent, a lot of those banks are state-owned. So in some sense, what is seen as a private system and the debt itself is held by individuals in a private capacity, uh, but the banks themselves are partly bank-stopped by China and by the Chinese government. And if they want to write debt off, uh, they can let, they can write debt off in the same way that a central bank can because a central bank doesn't have to have positive equity. Mm. Uh, now, if a if a if a state owned Chinese so called private bank uh, gets to be wiped out by equity, it can be instantly restocked by the Chinese government. So, I can expect in, if there's a financial crisis in China, it'll be too two sided. The the debtors will be in trouble, and particularly if the debt's on sold and you get debt collectors going after it, that's never a pleasant experience. But the banks themselves will continue, whereas in America, of course, when they when when you when you're looking at um, at the 2008 Armageddon that um, Paulson was was talking about when he was asked about you know if I don't what happens if we don't give you the 700 billion you want for the TARP project, his answer was may God have mercy on our souls, um, because the, the literally. All but one American bank would have collapsed. Mm. Um, six of the seven major shadow banks and almost all the uh, major banks would have collapsed at that stage, and American capitalism would have come to, to a grinding financial halt. That won't happen in China. So I, I see China as having a private debt crisis, uh, but it'll be more one on the debtor side, and then it's a question of what does China do about the debtors. And even you know, China doesn't have democracy, which is one of the best things in its favour because people go along and protest outside the party offices, they burn down things, they kill a few officials and the party tends to react better to that than they do to getting a bad vote every, every once every four years in elections. Well, it saves a lot of effort, doesn't it, with people going around to polling booths. You just leave, let a few people cause a bit of disruption and then you get changed that way. I comes not, not totally against that, but, but it's possibly not good to advocate killing people. Uh, <laughs> but um, but where does is, was Donald Trump right then? to take this war on? I mean, did he have any choice? Is he actually achieving anything or is he just making things worse? I think he's actually achieving something. This is the weird thing. I don't, I don't you know, he, sometimes you need a bull in the China shop, pardon the old the pun, mm. uh, to make things change. And I think he's been that bull. So um, it's what, what you've got is a, a shift of you know, American corporations are going to be deciding to get out of the supply chain business because, because it's difficult managing a long supply chain. Uh, you know, outsourcing and all this sort of stuff was, was sold as a miracle solution. It's been more of a pain in the ass than a miracle solution. Um, so that is, that is one, of, one of the issues. Um, and and the- that, would be, that would be fine, wouldn't it, if China's answer to all of that was to say, well, okay, we're not, uh, we're not the sweatshop anymore. We need to innovate ourselves. And we're starting to see some of that. There are some great innovations coming out of China now, which, are, which totally originate in China. And if it went down that road, that's great, unless America says, oh, no, that's a Chinese innovation. We're going to block that company. And then that's not fair. 
Yeah, and at the same time, they should block it for America, but you can't block it for the rest of the world. Yeah. Americans will try. I mean, this is the crazy thing. But how do you pronounce Huawei? I can get the name wrong. Huawei. Huawei. Well, I would say. Huawei. 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 Okay. Well, they're putting the Huawei uh, founder's daughter in prison in Canada for breaking an American rule about trading with Iran. I mean, God almighty, talk about imperial overreach. Yeah. That is just crazy that you can arrest somebody in a different country for breaking the laws of your country. Um, insane, but that's that's America. More to the point, particularly when actually they weren't breaking any agreement. You know, the, everyone had signed the uh, the Iran agreement, uh, and he decided to overrule it. So unilaterally, he was breaking the law. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's awful stuff. It's imp- that's why I say it's great power conflict things. You know, mm. you come down to what Sir Nicholas does rather than um, rather than geopolitics. And yeah. we've got a pretty weird Tsar Nicholas in, in America. Yeah, Tsar but Donald. In, in that sense, yeah, he, he is having, in this particular case, he's spurting investment, which uh, so long as Americans could outsource everything and make a cost advantage out of it, even if it was a pain in the ass to administer and so on, they'd keep on doing it. Because Trump has done this huge disruption, then American corporations are investing domestically. They will tend to do that. And when they do it, It'll be the latest technology uh, with a you know a lower need for labour and so on, and a local supply chain will start to develop. So, and then at the same time, we want to need to get away from the American dollar. But he doesn't want to cause do that. But that's an unintended side effect. The Chinese will be doing their best to design an alternative uh, trading system for the yeah, planet, which is which is a good outcome as well. Yeah, and then at the same time, we need to stop all those ships crossing the oceans. Well, <laughs> one ways if they've got no cargo, they don't cross. Mm. So um, yeah, it's 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 the unintended consequence, the the unintentionally good side of the of the um, the yellow the uh, the orange monkey. Right, a little, little bit of localization is not necessarily a bad thing. All right, yeah. we'll leave it there. Catch you again very soon. Thanks, Steve. Hey, mate. Bye. And that is the debunking economics podcast for today. Next time, or it might be the one after, we're going to look at the EU. Is the EU anti-growth with all this Brexit talk? A very topical discussion. Join us for that one. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keen. We'll see you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.